everybody. This is the 11th episode of the Disability Dish, the UML Perspective, and our podcast. And we are bringing it to you live today with an audience, which is a brand new thing for us. This is a part of the UMass Lowell's Social Justice Week. So we're very excited to be participating. And one of the reasons why it felt like we could join the Social Justice Week was the basic mission of our office and um, the office of this pod, uh, the mission of this podcast. So um, a major initiative for the Disability Services Office here at UMass Lowell is to go beyond our collective skills to reach the community beyond accommodations. Um, we want to openly and actively discuss ways in which we can support our fellow disability community members, whether within the university, our outside networks, and in our everyday lives. It's important and impactful to make a, dis a major effort to reduce stigma and shame around disability. We work towards flipping the script to highlight the uncountable strengths that can show through various disabilities. And this monthly podcast intends to provide representation and discussion around various interesting topics on disability. The disclaimer here is that this is just a discussion, a conversation. These are opinions and perspectives. No one is expected to be an expert. Um, we're just talking through some topics. And we should note that our founding co-host, Janelle, has left the university. She's a double river hawk and a former employee, so she's not going to be a stranger with us. But I'm introducing our new co-host, Lauren, say hello. And I'm going to have Lauren start with our general introduction that we have, which is um, to state your name, your role at the university or your profession, and your relationship with the word disability as you have one. Uh, so my name is Lauren Tornatori. I am the Senior Assistant Director of Disability Education and Promotion, I have the enhancement. Uh, I always get that wrong because there's a lot of words in that title. Um, and uh, here at UMass Lowell, I have worked at uh, the Disability Services Office here at the university for seven years. Um, my relationship with the word disability, we talked about this before when I was a guest on the podcast, and I have to think, I'm, I'm going to try now to remember what I said then. I would say, you know, part of it is this, this has been my career, definitely a, a part of my interest um, in education. I started out working in research, and then I worked in K through 12 schools for a while, and then worked in um, different universities and colleges. And I would say for me, I, I always approach it as a, a group of, of people that I could assist. Um, that when I thought about what I wanted to do in my career and when I was in psychology, like to me, it seemed like something that I could make an impact right away. And so when I think about the word disability, I think about the impacts that I can have on other people. Let's just go down the line and we're popcorn style that have our guests introduce themselves in the same fashion. I can go. Um, my name is Ainsley. I'm a sophomore at UMass Lowell. Um, my relationship with the word disability is that I identify as a person uh, with a disability. So I've been registered with disability supports um, since my freshman year since I came here. Um, and I'm also a member of the Disability Advisory Committee. Um, hi, everyone. I'm, I'm Marshall Greenleaf. I'm the Director of Student and Family Support Services. 
Um, so my office does a couple different things. Um, we receive basic need resources like the campus pan, uh, food pantry and strive program, and um, then also parent and family programs. Um, in terms of my relationship with the word disability, I think that for me and thinking about the work that I do and the folks that I interact with and the populations that I serve, um, when I think disability, I also think about the words access and participation um, because I think it's so critically important to use that lens through anything that we're planning or doing or providing or partnering or empowering any of the things that we're doing in higher ed. Um, I think we should be doing with that lens. And so um, in terms of thinking about my own learning and then the services that my office provides, um, thinking about it in a way where folks um, maybe not even need to request an accommodation or, or any sort of assistance, but can participate just, just by participating. I'm Erin Keen Krauts. Uh, I'm a senior director of enrollment events and orientation. I'm so she, her, hers pronouns. And my relationship to the word disability on the professional side, similar to Marshall, it's access, really making sure that what we do for all of our events that we host on campus, whether it's campus tours, open houses, orientation, um, that access is not for an exclusive group. It's for everybody. Um, and similar, trying to make sure that we do so in a way where people don't need to be requested. It's just part of the process of what we do. Uh, personally, I relate to the word disability. I have two invisible disabilities. And so just kind of thinking about those and what that means and kind of day-to-day -day interactions, whether it's um, you know, how I have to approach situations, what that means for my family if we approach situations, and then how to help when microaggressions pop up. Thanks. And because we are doing this live podcast, I will reintroduce myself. I'm Jody Rachens, and I'm the Director of Disability Services. I've been here at UMS Lowell since last November, but I've been doing direct work in this field for... 16 years approximately, um, and indirect work for a little bit longer than that. Um, my relationship with the word disability professionally, it's every minute of the day in the work that we do um, and the way we think about supporting students and the university community and education to others. My personal relationship to the word disability is what's gonna segue probably into our first topic. It's complicated. Um, I do have a chronic medical condition. I have Crohn's disease. I've had it for at least a decade and I take Humira medicine and, you know, it, I'm, it's very under control for me at the moment, but in times in my past when I've had to consider having a major surgery and be out of work for six weeks, um, or I've had to battle insurance companies or um, even thinking about when we were first getting the vaccine and whether I qualified into a group of immunocompromised people or not, it sort of comes up in, in those moments more, more often than not. Um, I, I also manage on a day-to-day -day basis an anxiety disorder and I go to therapy for my whole life and I love therapy and I embrace it um, and I embrace medication as necessary to stay functioning. Um, and so, you know, it's a, you know, do I, do I think about that on a daily basis? Not necessarily, but you know, it's, um, those are, those are two pieces of my relationship with the word disability. So we're going to segue in. And I feel like if I'm the most vulnerable, then other people will be vulnerable in this conversation too. So, um, so I'm, we're going to segue and Lauren's going to take us off kind of to our first big topic. 
Um, so our first topic for today is identity uh, and, you know, looking at that in terms of it being a complex relationship. And, you know, I was reflecting back in terms of joining this team for the podcast and, um, you know, having some previous guests here, you know, everyone here has shared something personal about, you know, their disability or the, their relationship to the word disability and, and have shared that in a public manner. Um, for some people, that can be empowering. For other people, there may be fear or shame associated with sharing a piece of ourselves publicly. Um, and I'm wondering for our previous guests, how did that feel in the moment to share that on a podcast and then have those feelings changed over time? Um, and I can go first in terms of somebody who hasn't had an opportunity to really share with the audience because that wasn't the topic when when uh, when I was on the podcast previously. Um, so I I wouldn't categorize it necessarily under the like the federal definition of a disability, but I do have a heart condition that most people don't know about. It's not something that I share with people publicly. Um, because there's oftentimes a lot of confusion around it. When I was a kid, there was confusion from doctors about what it was. Um, I had to go and have a lot of testing done and then have testing done every year in school. So I had to be pulled out so I could never have perfect attendance, um, but that was okay. So we got to go to Mass General and the food there is like really good. So I felt like it was like a fancy day in Boston for me as a kid. Um, but I think the part that always... I guess it was always fearful for me of sharing it with other people was if I would have um, like an episode in front of other people, which, so I have a valve in my heart that doesn't work properly. And so um, it's called mitral valve prolapse. And I have one that's called with regurgitation. What that means is that the mitral valve in my heart doesn't work in a way where I'm always getting a proper amount of oxygen, or sometimes there's oxygenated blood that's being mixed with unoxygenated blood. And it can be really hard at times for me to breathe. Um, and sometimes I'll have a severe pain associated with that. And it scares other people because I have to stop everything that I'm doing. Um, I just have to stop, wait until that passes. There's nothing I do to bring it on. There's nothing I do to make it go away. I just have to kind of wait for it to pass. Um, and definitely as I've gotten older, you know, then people have a fear, like, are you having a heart attack? Like, do we need to call 911? Like, you know, I mean, I'm 40 now. So, you know, there's things that happen that is, as you get older. And um, when I was a kid, it was either um, if I had an episode like at school or something and I had to stop doing everything and just breathe, um, typically the school would then call my parents and say, well, she shouldn't be going to recess. She shouldn't be in PE. She, we just need to like keep her in a bubble as if that was going to like do anything. Um, or I had some medical providers as I started moving around the country that would ask like, well, well, what are you doing when these things are coming on? Well, are you sure it's not a panic attack? Well, I think you're just having a panic attack. Uh, and kind of like dismissing what it is, even though I have plenty of medical evidence to show otherwise. And so it's something that I don't share with a lot of people because I feel like there's a lot of fear that people will think I'm not capable of doing something or telling me that I shouldn't be doing the things that I'm doing, like going running or hiking or things like that, that I should be taking it easy and sitting down. Um, and I think it's confusing for people to understand what it is because it just comes and goes. Again, there's not something I can do to make it start or stop. Um, and I think the other thing for me was the fear with COVID. 
um, hearing about, you know, people with different medical conditions, people with heart conditions were having issues and long lasting damage. And I can thinking, well, if I get COVID, like what's going to happen to me? Like, you know, is my life going to change? Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, I would say that that's something that I don't share very often publicly because for me, there is a lot of like fear and shame around it or feeling like I have to explain myself to people in a way that is, is confusing sometimes for people to understand. Um, I think as, as time has gone on, I've been more comfortable as an adult, but it's, again, it's not something I really share with people unless something happens in front of them because I never, I never think about like having that be the forefront. I know that's a lot. So thinking about with you all and sort of how your feelings feel about sharing publicly and if they've changed over time or since the last time you were a guest on the podcast, et cetera. Um, I can go. So um, in terms of my disability, I get a lot of anxiety um, and other things that affect uh, my learning. So uh, I need longer times um, often to take um, tests and to work on other assignments. Sometimes it takes me a longer time to really understand a concept um, and that kind of thing. Um, and I feel like I am relatively comfortable um, with sharing that publicly. I think part of the reason is because I went to a, a small high school where there were a lot of other kids who struggled with similar issues. Um, so I think that kind of helped me feel um, more comfortable with that. Although I know some people who have similar issues and went to a very large public school um, with whether there was not a lot of discussion about that kind of stuff. And they, as a result, don't feel as comfortable talking about it uh, publicly. I think another reason um, I'm comfortable sharing it is because I saw some statistic recently that I think one in five people struggle with anxiety or some sort of mental illness. Um, so I think that does help that it's a little bit more common. Uh, I think for me, uh, my, was, my situation was more of a, a late life onset. Um, so I developed Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, which is um, an autoimmune disorder. Um, it was 15 years ago at this point. Um, and I, it really hit me, literally hit me while I was running and had um, some negative things happening. Um, it's an inner ear nerve disorder. And so I literally started sweating while I was running and just kind of what that process was like and getting home safely um, and how quickly it progressed. And when I got to the doctor, I listed out my symptoms. They gave me an antibiotic for an ear infection. I crawled back and said, this is, these are the other things you have to take into consideration. They typed it into a computer and that's how I got my diagnosis. And so just kind of understanding what that meant and the very dramatic change it had on um, how I enter the day and how my family goes about things. Like I said, it's been a while now, so since then having um, you know, two kids and what that looks like. And so for me, the way it manifests is um, I have severe ear pain most days. Um, and also I'm, I'm chronically losing my hearing, uh, but the doc, I've seen some very fancy doctors and they can't give me a path of what's to come. So it's all just kind of well, let's wait and see. And a lot of it is also very stress induced. And so 
Um, there are times where whatever the case may be, things get really, really stressful. When that happens, I literally have a decline in hearing that's irreversible. And so then what does that look like and how do you accommodate for that? Um, it's a lot of talking with our kids to say, you know, I say, what? What'd you say? All the time. And just making sure that they understand and, and eye to eye with them. I want to know what you said. I'm not ignoring you. I literally didn't hear you. And so making sure that their voice is, is literally heard in that moment. Um, but it also means our family has made adjustments that we don't go to concerts as often. I have to build up to that because it's too painful. Otherwise, it's not just the, the hearing side. There's severe nerve damage. Um, what gets tricky with it too is that my family has to be has had to become the expert on this disease um, because there are three people in the world documented who have it the same way that I do, which is bilaterally. And the other two people who had it that way, um, they also had AIDS. I do not have AIDS. And so the doctors cannot figure out the correlation between the two. And so when you're an anomaly like that, you then also become an anomaly of similar to what you were saying, Jody. like, do I fall into this category for COVID vaccination? I was recently talking to my doctor about something the other day, and I said, well, how will this impact Ramsey Hunt? She goes, well, that's just your ears. I was like, what? Really? So just being the educator, even to your primary doctor, um, I think is important. I think in terms of my, you know, my journey with it, I'm a lot more comfortable now than I was. I was very, very lucky that my um, wife put together a GoFundMe so that I could have hearing aids, right? Something that aren't always covered by insurance and that are incredibly expensive. Um, and that was probably the most humbling experience that I've encountered so far. And, um, and then being in a place of, of work that supports access, but also seeing a lot of my progressions. Um, and I think the one that stands out to me the most is being in you know, I'm very mindful who I sit next to at meetings so that they can tell me what's being said across the room if I can't hear it. I can only wear my hearing aids for a few hours a day or I get severe headaches. So there's a lot of these kind of nuances. Um, but I think those microaggressions of being in large groups and someone saying, oh, I don't need a microphone. I can be loud. And just kind of the, you may be loud, but my ears don't pick up well. So it's, it's a two-way street in that relationship. And so really trying to that has been a motivator for me to be more outspoken about it. I think I'm, I'm a keep things close to the heart type of person. Um, and I get, you know, I get sweaty palms when I talk about it. And, you know, I get all nervous, I, I jiggle, I get nervous and all those things. But, um, you know, kind of what you were saying, if I can be vulnerable and let people know that you can't see this, it's not something that's outward. But this is something I am thinking about almost every moment of every day, whether it's because of pain or it's lack of being able to hear what's going on around me um, or needing to be mindful of the environment I'm in for health reasons um, that, you know, if I can do that, then maybe somebody else can also have that opportunity to whatever path they need to be provided for them. Thank you. And I do want to share, even though this is recorded without video, that we did work hard to try to find a microphone situation for this room. And the only microphone is over here at this podium, which doesn't really work in the podcast style. But there's a whole system of recording that's going on kind of in this entire room. And that's why we have the captions up as well. So, yeah, we, we looked into that pretty hard. <laughs> Um, I think I would just add, so I, I do not identify as having a disability. Um, 
but like Aaron, what you said about microaggressions really resounded because I'm sure I have been someone to do those microaggressions to someone at some point. And I think for my like understanding of my identity and how I work around these issues, like I think I, I recognize that I've had a big learning curve in my professional career. Um, and I think one of the things I have to be mindful of is if I'm receiving feedback or if someone's um, asking for something or letting me know something's not working, like for me, that felt like I felt guilty and I felt really embarrassed and also a little bit defensive. Um, and I had to recognize like those feelings were about me. It wasn't about the person or the situation and being able to do that and continually being able to do that. Um, and I think, you know, I still struggle because I want things to be good for everyone. And I also don't want to be seen as someone not knowledgeable about things too. I mean, there's so much that goes into it, but then at the end of the day, it's not about me. It's about making things the best it can be for everyone. Um, and I, I just had a conversation with a student in a class that I teach who um, was like, hey, I want you to know like your Zoom background is actually really distracting in class. Um, meaning that it just, it was very colorful um, and was distracting. And I hadn't thought about that. And so that was like a new point of learning for me. And I was, and, you know, it's, it's those situations where, you know, it's how you take that feedback and like understand it, you know, especially as people who don't have to operate with um, the world of having a disability and, and being able to be good advocates and, and supporters and, and doing our own work. I so appreciate that. And one of the themes that has come up in every episode is, and, and since we're talking about themes that have come up among the episodes, is really that mistakes are going to happen, errors are going to happen. We, as the people in the disability office who meet with people day in and day out, don't make a day where we don't make a mistake or something that, you know, um, you know, somebody may not lay well with somebody or something like that. And and you know the the only way we can do it is yeah to reflect on to reflect on ourselves and usually I try to you know say think that the person was really brave to point it out to me or to bring it up you know so when anybody takes the time to give feedback even if their delivery isn't the kindest or the nicest um, you know to to try to to take that into account and think that they are being brave in some capacity to even broach the topic so let's you know let's take take that and and say let's can, can we, like let's get into that a little bit more and thank you for for sharing so you know um i i appreciate that too errors are okay we're gonna do it there's just so much moving constantly with identities and with how what people's needs are i mean we have this concept of universal design we talk about all that time and even universal design, even of itself, like couldn't ever possibly truly and totally encompass every single person and every single person's needs. There's always going to be competing needs. I mean, even just thinking of somebody who has a service dog who's sitting next to somebody who has an allergy to dogs, like they're just competing, right? It's just competing things. It's it's going to happen. And we have to just sort of navigate that all the time. I, I, you know, Lauren and I were, when we were talking about these questions, we were wondering if there's any spaces where it might not be safe to share publicly. You all have kind of shared that you're sort of comfortable with it and I'm sort of comfortable with it, but I'm wondering if there are spaces you can think of where it doesn't feel as safe. Yes, Ainsley. I think uh, in one situation where I am hesitant to share the fact that I get um, anxiety and social anxiety is if I'm uh, with a friend that I don't know so well or it's a new friend because 
when somebody when you're getting to know someone one thing you don't I, I think that some people don't want to hear is like oh yeah I get social anxiety because then it's like oh is this person someone I can hang out with in large groups of people is this somebody that I can go to a party with so I think sometimes in those situations I'm hesitant to share because I don't want that to kind of make someone not want to be friends with me um so that is one situation where I am hesitant to share that yeah I, I'm hesitant if I feel like it's going to rock the boat so for example um my office location has to be pretty specific because of things like air vents and the low vibrations that they make or things like that. But like, there's so many layers of politics as to what offices go to what people. And so not wanting to rock the boat with that. Um, and I think too, having, from my perspective, having an invisible disability, nine out of 10 people forget when they don't see because it's not something outward. And so if you go through that vulnerability of sharing um, and then it's forgotten, which is totally fair because it's not something they're living with, how often do you want to re-subject yourself to in front of the same people with the same thing? So it's more of what covert operations can I have to just kind of get through the day? And sometimes it is literally, I, I just got to get through the day. For me, it's, it's the exact opposite of what I would ever advise anybody else is that I have today, you know, UML today had a note that said like, update your emergency information in HR Direct. So I went on the HR Direct and I'm updating my emergency information. And on the left-hand side, it's like disability information. And I clicked on it and I was like, I wonder what I said a year ago about whether I have a disability or not. And um, I, I don't know if it was recorded. It was a it was an empty space, so I don't know if it's just a chance to update it. And I did say something or what, but I, you know, I thought to myself today, am I a yes or am I a no here? I'm not even like really registering with HR here. I'm just sort of like giving them data for data, and you know, what which which radio button do I select here today? Even today, I'm sitting there with that, and you know, and I haven't. I haven't, you know, publicly registered with any HR I've ever worked at, although I thought about it uh, quite a few years ago when I, there was a very significant chance that I was going to have to have a major surgery and have to go on FMLA for a long time. Luckily, we, we found that injecting Humira bi-monthly has solved, saved it for eight years for me. Um, but, um, you know, uh, and so I, you know, today I said, today I'm a yes. Today I said yes, um, you know, but I, I haven't really, still haven't really openly shared it because it, it doesn't impede in my daily life. But I would definitely advise anybody else to say like, just get on the books because in case you need it, and I still haven't done it. So there you go. Um, <laughs> That's so much easier to have it done instead yeah. of go back in time and I don't follow my own advice. So great. Um, <laughs> so there you go. It doesn't feel unsafe for me. It just hasn't crossed over a line to feel necessary. And yet, as I say it, I don't like my own answer. So there. <laughs> um, I'm thinking what we could do before we like move topics is open it up and see if anybody in the audience uh, is inspired to ask a question or to share. And we'll repeat back anything you say into the recording. You do not have to, we can absolutely keep going, but. Yes, the lady in the third row. <laughs> The lady. Mm -hmm. um, I was just wondering for you if you've ever felt nervous about 
bringing this up in class or with your faculty members? So we'll just repeat back. The question is, have you ever felt nervous about bringing it up with your faculty or in class? Um, I would say sometimes um, because I'm registered with disability supports and the way that works is I believe um, when a professor has students who are registered with disability supports, what I've been told is they get an email at the beginning of the semester with the names of everybody and all the students in their class that are registered. And then um, it's best to follow up with the professor like one-on-one. -on -one. Um, so some of the accommodations that I have are use of the testing center um, for exams and quizzes um, so that I can use extra time and it's a less distracting environment for me. Um, there have been some times where I'm hesitant to share it. Um, like for instance, um, if there is a, um, I have extra time. So sometimes if, it's hard to describe, but if I have a class that goes from nine to 9.50 and let's say I get time and a half on tests. So the test will go until maybe like about 10.15 or something. Then, and I usually have a class from like 10 to 10.50. I might have to ask to take the exam later in the day so that it doesn't run into my previous class. And then I don't want the professor to think that I am kind of getting away with having more time to study or maybe having another classmate tell me the answers or something like that. Um, so that is something I'm hesitant about. Um, but most professors are really understanding about that. Um, I did have a professor a couple semesters ago who was not comfortable with the use of the testing center, um, which was a bit frustrating. Um, so not all professors are accommodating, but I think that most professors are very understanding. So generally, I do feel comfortable sharing it with the professors. Ainsley, you're a goody two-shoes. That means that you request your letters every semester at the beginning of the semester because we don't provide a list to each of the faculty, yeah. much to their dismay, yeah. right from the get-go because each student has to activate their interest in their faculty at the beginning of each semester. So we just do it on an as-ask basis. That means you have been doing what you're supposed to do every single semester. Thank so good you. job. Yeah. <laughs> as we're this many weeks in and I'm still reminding students. Can you talk to your faculty, please? Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions or comments that have come up from the part one of our talk today? Yeah. I am Sarah. Um, I'm wondering, do you see an increase in students using your services in a positive way? In other words, they're advocating for themselves and there is more um, awareness about registering for a disability? Are we seeing an increase in a positive way more students registering? And um, is it, you know, is it? kind of a, a positive word spreading. Um, I would say yes-ish. Um, so we are super, super under um, represented in that. So about 25% of the American population have, can identify with a disability. And we think that about 15% on any college campus students have an actual documented disability that they could register with our office for. The national average of students registering is about 11 or 12% of students on that campus. We're at seven. We've gone up from six from last year. So we're getting that, you know, we're slowly getting there and we're trying hard to get the word out. And I hope by doing things like this and reducing stigma, 
um, and, and helping people feel safe and comfortable with our office, that it, it continues to go on the rise. There, there, it was really significantly rising, and then something happened around COVID where either certain accommodation students maybe needed didn't weren't as necessary in a remote environment, um, or students that really needed things uh, stopped their education, unfortunately, during that period of time, or any variety of things. So we're it just as everybody's sort of recovering in different ways from that, I think we're recovering. Like when we look at our numbers, we have a sophomores and juniors are lower than than they ought to be, and sort of the trajectory of students who are registered with us. So we're, you know, we're recouping from that. But that being said, I mean, our first year class registering with us is is going up, and the biggest area is that our number one category in which students are registered with us is ADHD, and then number two is that psychological disabilities. And so we think that uh, there's a lot of stigma going down in both of those areas, which is really um, exciting, I guess. And that, you know, people feel like um, they actually can be recognized and can get supports from that. We were pretty hard pressed in the fall for students who were registering with us for them not to have self-identified with a mental health um, disability, either as the single thing they were registering with us for or additional to a learning disability or ADD or some or a chronic medical condition. I mean, we're very hard pressed to have a student not select a mental health thing. Um, we haven't run the data on it, but I think it would be low to find a student who didn't. Um, so yeah, so it's it's coming along, I would say. So it's yeah, it's a yes and a no. I would say, I would say in response when you asked that question, Sarah, my mind actually went someplace else. Oh, good. In terms of like my career in higher education, so I worked at a, a small, very fancy liberal arts school. Was my first job that I had in the in disability and higher ed, and then I've worked at two public institutions. Um, and I think what's interesting when I came to UMass Lowell, um, it was the first time I had an office that wasn't in a basement, hidden away from everybody. Um, that it wasn't, it, we're, in, we're a one person show, you know, a, we're a one and a half person show that's hidden in a basement that nobody knows about. Um, so I think that's a big difference. You know, we're in university crossings. It's where the library is. It's where other offices are. You know, you can easily walk down the hallway and find us. Um, so I appreciate that, just the, the visibility. Um, and I would also say, too, I think more openness as my career has gone on. I feel like initially um, I would mostly get contact from other offices or from faculty when something went wrong, when, hey, I showed a video and I didn't know that somebody in my class needed captioning and, and they complained about it. Or, you know, somebody came to a lab and they couldn't open the door or, like, you know, like different things like that. Um, so then now having people reach out to us proactively to say, hey, we're thinking of putting on programming. What do you think about this? Or, hey, we would like to do professional development in this way. Um, you know, I think just being invited more to the table of people seeing disability as an identity and, and recognizing that they might need to think about things differently is, is exciting to me, you know? So, um, so yeah, in terms of numbers, Jody knows all the, all the stats. Um, but I was just thinking globally for a second when you asked that question, because I think it's it's interesting for me to reflect back on that as time has gone on. And I think part of that is too, students are more comfortable sharing things publicly. You know, I know social media is always a positive and, and negative. You know, it's it's never a one great thing or one terrible thing. 
but I have seen a rise of a lot of people just being more open about challenges that they're going through in, in a more public manner. And I think that's helping more people come forward and also helping people come forward and say, this is what I need in order to be successful. This is what I need to participate instead of, um, you know, the example that Aaron was giving about, uh, you know, with the microphone, right? That, that my hope is, you know, nobody's going to go, when they're asked to give the microphone, you know, every time someone does, I'm always like, oh, please just wait a second. I know, I know it's hard to wait for a microphone to come around, but knowing that it's not about the, the uncomfortability of my voice being amplified, but rather just making sure everyone can hear me. Uh, and so just those small things like that, I think are, are, are coming along. Anything else before we move on to the next topic? Sarah, it was actually a great question because it's segued into topic two, which has come up throughout every single one of our podcast episodes, which is stigma, disability stigma. Um, so it, it took a moment to kind of define some of the, the stuff around stigma. So stigma comes from sort of the Latin roots of sort of mark, the word mark, mark of disgrace. Um, and it's usually associated with a particular quality or circumstance. So that's sort of what the word stigma sort of roots back to. And then stigma and stereotyping often go hand in hand. Um, and, and people with disabilities can often be stereotyped into being presumed to be helpless, unable to care for themselves, unable to make their own decisions. Um, sometimes like somebody who has a speech impairment may be presumed to have another type of disability, like an intellectual disability or something like that. Um, you know, or somebody who, when somebody reveals that they have a harder time hearing, somebody just raises their voice and speaks really slowly, and that may not be what actually makes the circumstance better for that person, too, um, you know, and so um, kind of thinking about some of the ways that we do that. So I guess sort of like the hard question on this question is sort of like, how do we even have stigma? And then sort of how has it changed over our lifetime and where we still have to go, you know, kind of that hard question. Okay. Yeah. Um, so um, you shared, you know, you went counseling, you're going to counseling. So one of the things that I think uh, helps with dissipating this stigma is people in, in leadership positions or everyday people just say, yeah, I'm going counseling and it's okay. It's actually, you know, so I think we had a division meeting and a professor uh, up there and she said, I'm going counseling and it's okay because part of uh, my culture is uh, going counseling and going to is, is a taboo, right? Mm -hmm. but, but it's important to recognize that it is an essential part of getting healthier. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're, we, we try to, you know, sometimes we hold that stuff back, but actually, you know, are you stronger because you're getting the help that you need so you can exist on a daily basis? Absolutely, right? And so it's it's really an asset, you know, to to have a, a place where you can kind of work through what you need and get your tools and get your coping strategies so that you can exist. And if you don't, that's when it seeps, seeps into the other areas, right? Um, so yeah, but people don't talk about it. There's a lot of stigma, especially probably mental health is probably the most stigmatized of the disabilities. Ainsley. Yeah, speaking of mental health, um, I have learned that people with um, mental health disorders, people affected by mental health disorders like ADHD and depression, anxiety, um, those tend to affect people with higher IQs, which I thought was interesting to learn because 
you might think of it and be like, oh, this person has trouble learning. But in reality, if they were to take an IQ test, you would see that they're, you know, pretty uh, smart and they can really learn quickly. It's just kind of about learning differently, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're dumber than somebody else. Yeah, really interesting. I think too, stigma comes from the unknown. Right, so I think well, for me, in my opinion, so if, if there's a stigma about something that probably stems from somebody not fully understanding, so they just put their own category onto whatever that thing is, and that whether that's disability, race, economic status, I think it's it, whoever put that category is the one who just there's a fear at the end of. Them. I think also like destigmatizing. I think involves regularly engaging in conversations and discussion about something, you know, and I think like, you know, many of us plan events or programs and having conversations about accessibility from the get-go is important. And if it's just part of your normal operating procedure for how you approach something, then it becomes easier to identify issues or to proactively um, make an event more accessible or a service more accessible. I think also, though, too, like bringing it, like having more conversations that are personal, too, right? Like, because sometimes, especially in our, you know, we obviously we work with this population in our office, and, and sometimes it does feel like you're, you're trying to get through all these meetings, we're trying to meet with as many students as possible. And I think sometimes, you know, we get so into the business of like putting on that event or doing those things that we end up checking boxes. And sometimes for me, I forget, like, you know, I might be focused on one thing, like, is there a microphone in the room and can we pass it around or whatever, but I might be not thinking about the accessibility of the parking or like the other things leading up to that event or like are the things that people are asked to read kind of overwhelming or uh, any of those things. And, and so I think part of it is making sure it's in the forefront when we're doing those things professionally. But then I think also having personal conversations like this, where you can put a face to a name or put a face to something so that it's not this scary thing that could happen to you one day as if that's the end all be all, but more, okay, I know this person and, and I know what they're going through and, you know, so that you can help identify and, and humanize it, I think, a little bit. On the heels of what you said, Erin, too, about it being sort of about the unknown, I also think that there's a fear of contagion um, that, you know, and there are some small brackets of disabilities in the like, chronic medical area where there might be some contagion, um, but for the most part, most disabilities are singular to the one singular human person, um, you know, and that if you, you know, if I tell you about my anxiety and that I go to counseling, it doesn't mean it's not going to make you an anxious person who needs to go to counseling necessarily. Although it perhaps might make you think, oh, maybe I should go to counseling and that's okay too. Um, you're not going to get my Crohn's disease. My, my children might genetically, unfortunately, but, um, you know, the, you know, it's, there's not a contagion, but I think if we think of stigma in any category of stigma, you know, in any of the things that social justice is covering this entire week, the word stigma can play around in that one. And we can think about how people can have a fear of sort of a contagion of, of, of otherness, right? And, and, and how we, our human brains need to categorize things as this or that. And, and so 
that's a that's a tough one to break down sometimes too. You just made me think of when when we work open house and things like that sometimes, and um, it's always funny to me. There's aren't a ton of people, but there's always one or two families because we always have free things at our table and it attracts people to the table. And I'll say, "Oh, do you want to talk about uh, services for students with disabilities?" Like I'm, you know, trying to engage people and. There's always at least one or two that'll read it, read the sign out loud and say like disability services. Oh, we definitely don't need that. Like an announcement to everyone as if that's the worst thing that's ever happened, you know? And then I'm always like, oh, are you sure? Or, you know, what can I help you with? You know, and things like that. And I, because I think there is sometimes that stigma or stereotype when you say the word disability, there's a certain thing that comes to mind of what that means. And so, uh, you know, when people have negative connotations with that, unfortunately, I think it is getting better, but I always find that interesting or, or when people ask me what I do for a living. And when I talk about that, it's interesting to see people's reactions. It's a, it's a good way to weed out if I want to continue to be friends with someone or get to know their reaction to what it is that I do for a living and who I work with. Um, I also wanted to um, just say that I think there have been a lot of um, strides made in ending stigma, like over the past uh, few decades, like for instance, my dad told me recently, it's so great that you're involved in disability advocacy on campus and that you're not afraid to share these things. Because when my dad was very young, he had uh, bacterial meningitis, it's basically fluid in the back of his brain. Um, he almost died, but when he... Um, had like that fluid removed, um, there was the possibility that it could affect um, like his learning or his like verbal skills or something. I think he was like eight at the time, um, but because there was no HIPAA at the time and because schools would put kids on kind of a dumb track or a smart track, um, his school ended up finding out about that and they put him on the dumb track. Um, and when he um, finished high school and he went to college, he realized that uh, he had some symptoms of dyslexia. Um, and he said, yeah, I had these symptoms. You know, I, I noticed this when I was in high school, but I don't think it was ever really acknowledged or validated by teachers because I was put on the dumb track as a kid. Um, so I think it's, you know, also important to recognize that there have been strides made. Um, but I think my dad, that stigma is kind of still with him because I asked him if he's ever, um, you know, throughout his career ever told um, a job or an employer that he has dyslexia and that makes him sorry. He said, no. Okay. So. It speaks to the labeling that people think, right? So I see patients who might be afraid to say something they don't want it in the medical record because then it labels them. And in some regards, there's been in the past uh, concerns about what they meant for future insurances uh, might, might change their coverage, you know, the medical access they have. But as, a, as, as nurses were taught, you know, this is not gallbladder in room 27. It's, you know, Smith who has cholecystitis. You know, so it's like it's a person with something, not something that becomes the person or the, that the person becomes, I should say. So it's how we perceive that as well. 
And that that's really interesting that you you shared about the the labeling because as as has, was already kind of said the word disability is a complicated word in and of its own. There have been folks that have moved away from even the office that's on campus from a disability office to a, a different word, a more approachable word, an access word, and those kind of things. And it's something that we've talked about and we've dabbled in. And it's 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 sort of a tug of war between you know should we just it's okay. Disability is an identity. It's just a thing. It's not a big deal. So we should hold disability as a word and be proud of it. Or, or are we doing ourselves a disservice? And there are people who would more likely engage with us if we didn't have that word disability. And, you know, and, and we have a tug of war on that uh, on a somewhat regular basis. It comes up, um, you know, in terms, in terms of just the word disability. And is that okay word to use and the, those kind of things and the person first person with disability and then some communities have said I'm deaf with a capital D I have I am autistic you know and they want that identity identity first and so kind of working through that yeah I think um the word disability a lot of people think of that as being you know like somebody who's in a wheelchair or somebody who's uh non-verbal and a lot of people don't realize that it's a spectrum and it can encompass a lot of things like um you know for instance learning disabilities that might not be visible and just because it's not something that doesn't affect every aspect of your life doesn't mean it doesn't qualify as a disability yeah we've talked a lot about invisible and visible disabilities among the different episodes and it's complicated on both fronts, basically, and how people treat you and what people expect of you. Um, it's complicated on both fronts with that. So where where do we still need to go with stigma? I mean, that's a loaded question, but no. Just continuing the dialogue, being more open, and I think I think here at UMass Lowell, just continuing to to push the campus to talk about inclusivity and include disability within inclusivity up front. You know, um, I think we're, we're starting to do a lot of work on DE&I and sometimes, sometimes I feel like disability is not always included in, in diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know? And so sometimes I feel like, oh, when is it gonna be our turn, quote unquote, for our office? And so I, that's one thing that I would like to see is just being included in more things like, you know, like this week with Social Justice Week, most people wouldn't think of our office as being a part of that, but we are because, you know, we are a part of, of inclusion here on campus. And so I think the more visibility that we can have and, and partnering with more people to um, create inclusion on campus is important to me. That's a change I'd like to see uh, more permanent as we go on. I think um, education is really going to be a big part of ending the stigma. Um, and like I said before, like learning that disability isn't um, is a is a broad spectrum. And just because someone has a psychological illness doesn't mean uh, or autism doesn't mean that they're necessarily dumber. It just means that it can make certain things better. Yeah. I think too. I think those of us who our employees here, um, one of the things we also have to battle against are um, the world of higher ed in terms of graduation rates and you know all the other standings and whatnot, but what did that impact have on the students in terms of if, 
if it's not in their best well-being to go at a you know full pace schedule but then that's going to impact graduation like where is that balance I guess um and I, I you know, I'm confident everybody here knows that you know students are so much more than a data point in um in any situation but there's still that piece that we have to consider and I think that can get really tricky um and then I think too it's just uplifting those voices that are out there um, that also seem bigger than we are. And I'm gonna use the example of Simone Biles who just stopped in the Olympics because it was not healthy for her physically because of what she was going through. Um, and that, that to me was the most inspiring thing and the, the conversations that opened with our kids and then with their friends. and. And for me, I'm like, I think there should be a poster of Simone Biles in every single gymnasium, in every single elementary school, so that there's understanding that strong women, strong women of color can stand up and say, this is what's best for me. And I, I couldn't do a flip through the air on a great day with everything. So the fact that, that these incredibly strong people have the courage to do it, keep it up keep it up and then congratulate that in any way that we can. We need those brave heroes. <laughs> well, I think also like, I mean, on a really basic level, like having systems in place to make sure that folks who maybe aren't as willing to be on board with being as inclusive, like that it becomes part of like a mandated part of their job. You know, like it, it made me feel really sad when you said like a professor was like, no, you can't use the testing center or I'm not comfortable with it. Um, when that seems like so easy and basic to let someone do, you know, so, I think so. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, I, I think when we're talking about anything related to like equity and inclusion and diversity, like, you know, are there systems in place for folks that aren't on board? Because like the environment still needs to be one where people can thrive. Yeah, I think for me, in a collection of everything everybody said, it's just we have to continue to flip this into a strength-based model. We have to, this is, you know, utilizing accommodations or asking for what you need or having other people think about what you might need ahead of time and those kind of things. It's all strength-based. It's all human, you know, human-based. Um, and so that, you know, people feel safe and they feel like they belong and they feel like they are understood in all those pieces. So I think continuing to just, just move along that trajectory of, getting this to be strength-based um, is my hope for, for the next the next wave of this whatever time. Okay, so stigma was category number two. Anyone from the peanut gallery want to participate in this one? I just wanted to say that I think, Maya, I know that you mentioned your culture and I, I just, culture, that culture, it isn't your culture. I think that culture is out there across the board. Um, I know some years back, um, after suffering some severe losses in my family, I had to go talk to someone or I wasn't going to survive it. And I put on my calendar private. I, I, I wouldn't say doctor so-and-so tell my staff where I was going because it was like, you can't be feeling that way. You're leading us, or whatever the story was, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I really see it, and I'm not sure it's changed that much. I mean, 
I, I don't continue to go. I think I maxed out what I needed and I'm, I'm going through things fine, and I'm fine. But like, I, I don't know necessarily how much healthier we have become as a country around therapy and mental illness and all of that. Um, and yesterday at the Council of Advisors, Melissa Wall came and spoke and it's, it's like, I'm in my pocket and I see the positivity of students getting help and all of that, but it's, is that really who we are? Is, you know, there's a whole bunch of other students out there that are suffering and it could be the same students that are, are in getting help at the center. So um, I, think, I think for stigma, we just have to just move forward and know that that's, people are, you don't know who you're walking next to in the hallway. You don't know what their journey is. You don't know what they're carrying on their backs and you just have to be a better person. Thank you. Yeah. Just thinking about culture. And that is something that's come up too. this sort of intersectional identities too, in terms of, in terms of that. And I don't think as a country, our, our country, our entire country has gotten there yet. We, we live in a, a Massachusetts bubble sometimes that is convenient for some of the ways that many of us think. But, um, but yeah, I think you're, you're right that um, the this, this stigma and the mental health stigma. And I think as we think of heroes like Simone Biles, who's a hero to many children, but also just girls or the Black community or me, anybody, I, she's my a hero of mine, you know, um, you know, people who are at the top of their things talking about this and saying, this is, this is how I'm taking care of myself. This is what I'm doing for me. And this is what I need. Um, and being brave enough to share. I mean, there's a number of athletes that are now choosing to talk about that. Michael Phelps, um, Naomi Osaka, I think, uh, but, you know, and then actors. And I, I try to push that into the newsletter of like, you know, different uh, celebrities who are talking about how they're taking time for mental health or going to therapy or disabilities that they have and how they're managing it um, and how they're still finding ways to be on, on top of their game and whatever that looks like. And I think that that's, um, you know, or even renegotiating their identity. I mean, Simone Biles is renegotiating her identity and that's okay too. Um, yeah. Yeah, Sarah. <laughs> I was just going to say, uh, I think a lot of it's generational too. I feel like um, sort of the average age in this room is the sandwich generation between what I have to explain to my 85-year-old father, what I'm learning and understanding by educating myself and what students like Ray Ainsley is bringing to us. Mm -hmm. These are the issues right now. So I feel like it's a great transitional time, but it's very hard work. I don't identify as someone with a disability um, either, but like Marshall was describing, like it's on us to educate ourselves and be vulnerable and um, be patient and try, at least try. But I'm, I'm hoping that there's like a whole generation that's gonna fade away and um, there'll be a lot less explaining to do. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> I'm hoping it's gonna go away too. <laughs> we want to be put out of a job. That's what we always say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you want me to move to the well, next? Well, do you want to say something? Um, I think that that is a really important part of ending the stigma. Is kind of generational. You know, maybe older people don't know anything about this, but we can at least kind of start with the younger people. And I think educating, you know, kids as they go through school, because a lot of people are affected by disabilities, you know, when they're younger, or, you know, it can be later in life. Mm -hmm. But I think that it's really important to start, um, like,
like early in, uh, in schools. Um, and I think that there is some culture in school that is um, not favorable to people with disabilities. Uh, for instance, I saw like a post on um, Instagram recently where someone was just saying, you know, isn't it kind of messed up that when we were, you know, in, you know, first grade, they rewarded us for having perfect attendance when there were probably kids that had, you know, health issues or other things they were going through that kept them from having perfect attendance. And, you know, in a way we were kind of rewarding students who didn't have a lot going on instead of rewarding people for just kind of doing their best. Um, yeah. So that was something I thought about. Yeah. And I think that even in um, higher education, that can still be an issue. For instance, last semester, um, I had I was really struggling mentally and I had to go part-time. Um, I was taking 11 credits and the minimum for full-time is 12 credits. And at the end of the semester, even though I had a really high GPA, I didn't make Dean's List because you have to be a full-time student to be on Dean's List. Um, so even though I had a really great, even though I had really great grades, I'm just not able to, you know, say Dean's List on my resume for that semester, you know, for that reason. So that's a little, that's a little difficult. That. <laughs> that's not that we can fix. <laughs> but yeah, you're you're right. I mean, there is some progress. I used to work at a high school for students when it started, probably 45 or 50 years ago. It was for students with language-based learning disabilities, so students with dyslexia um, and other sort of learning disabilities. And the school, when I worked there 13 years ago, it was had to change sort of its its uh, cohort of students because most of the public schools were like, we can have somebody with dyslexia in our school. That's no problem. We have plenty of tools and ways to have somebody be very successful and go on to a college seeking or whatever their next chapter of life is with dyslexia. No big deal anymore. We don't have to send those kids to a private school anymore. So like that was kind of cool. And it was, you know, that private school was trying to figure out who they, who they were for that reason, because public schools were like, yeah, we got this, you know, and that, as you were saying, Ainsley, like most schools aren't really adopting a as you said, kind of dumb track and a smart track anymore. They're they're helping you know students find their various sort of windy tracks, right? Whatever they whatever they look like. Um, yeah. yeah. All right, let's go to part three in our kind of last bit here. Yeah. Our next topic was media media portrayal of people with disabilities, um, and just a couple quick stats. Uh, Nielsen's twenty twenty two attitudes on representation on TV found that 48% of viewers are more likely to watch content in which their identity group is represented. While 34% of people with disabilities surveyed said they felt underrepresented in the media and 52% said they were inaccurately represented. Um, by providing visibility into the presence of physical, intellectual, cognitive, mental, and sensory impairments in people appearing in popular programming, Grace Note Inclusion Analytics paves the way for more equitable and accurate representation amongst the disability community and more informed decision-making around content investments. Um, so that is a, so Grace Note is a division of Nielsen that is working on further representation of people with disabilities in the media. 
Um, so questions for the group are, um, can you remember uh, when you first saw disability portrayed in the media? So TV, book, movie, um, how does that compare to disability in the media now? And did that portrayal contribute to or defy stereotypes? I think for me, it was Sesame Street with Linda. I don't know if anyone remembers Linda from Sesame Street, but she um, was a cast member who was deaf and used um, sign language to communicate. And that was, that's the first thing that I remember and just being like, this is so cool. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was before I knew anything about my own ears. So that was just really, I just remember that sticking out as being like, Super awesome. <laughs> my my cousin has an uncle on, the, on another side of his family who is deaf. And so my uncle and his brother use American Sign Language. And as a kid, like in the 80s and 90s, I thought it was so cool. They had their own language that nobody else knew. If I wanted to talk to them, two adults had to be giving me all their attention, which was amazing. They had a special phone that the lights dimmed and stuff when it rang. I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Like, how does this work? Yeah, uh, yeah that's definitely, um, like from childhood, I remember that. Um, one of the reasons I, I had, uh, when, when we were talking about topics and things, one of the reasons this came up for me was because I've been rewatching the TV show Fargo. Um, and I don't know if anyone's watched that, but there's a couple seasons where they have characters with a disability. Uh, they're portrayed very differently. Um, there's one season where there's a character who has uh, cerebral palsy, who wants to get into the family business of crime and, and decides he's going to do a hit on somebody. Um, and, and they kind of show how he's able to operate a gun one-handed and kind of what happens there. And I thought that was very interesting because you saw a character, you know, those those types of characters in like the mob are usually like a badass and they do everything flawlessly, you know, and it just kind of moves through and, and they never have any issues with like a gun going off or anything like that. And and I think for for that family to see that character as being capable of, of doing this, I, I thought was a really interesting portrayal of someone with a disability, um, especially with a physical disability. And then a more recent season, there's a main character um, who has OCD um, and has lots of tics and um, it, like verbal tics, as well as having issues like getting in and out of rooms without performing a ritual. Um, and that character is interesting to me. As I'm rewatching, I'm only like halfway through rewatching, uh, but just watching that character and kind of the way other people react around him. Because um, it's set in the 1950s, so that wasn't something a lot of people really knew about. Um, and kind of some characters just, um, you know, just dealing with the tics and understanding and definitely other people make fun of that character openly for, you know, well, you don't even know how to get out of a room. You don't know how to open a door because he has to knock on a door five times before he can exit a room. Um, so just kind of seeing those things um, and, and the way those characters are being treated uh, but I think what's what's interesting to me overall in watching that TV series is I can't remember a, a series that I've watched that had multiple main characters who had disabilities even represented in it. 
um, that usually that's an anomaly or a special episode or, you know, it focuses on everybody having a disability. So it, to me, that was just a, an interesting thing that I've been. But I didn't know if anybody else had any TV books. I was thinking about just now about two instances, one from my childhood and one recently where they don't say that the person has a disability um, and how they were really different. So there, there was this movie in the 80s uh, with Fred Savage and his brother had autism, but they never said he had autism. And it's when they de debuted Mario 3. <laughs> it was with this movie, The Wizard. Um, and I remember being in the movie theater and I like loved watching it and it was so exciting because then we could go buy Mario 3 and play it on our Nintendos at home. Um, but, um, but they... The, the kid had autism and they never said it. He just was a mute uh, kind of kid who, you know, didn't engage with the world in the same way, but he was a savant who, you know, could beat the game. And, and that's, they wanted to go to this tournament or something. I don't even remember all the details of the movie, but something like that. Um, and they never said he had autism. They just, he was just different. Um, and then in the more recently, there's a TV show, The Sex Lives of College Girls that Mindy Kaling has on HBO. And there's a, secondary character but she's she's in it a lot she's in a wheelchair um the actress actually has muscular dystrophy or als i forget which one i'm sorry but um but she uh they never say anything about her disability she's just there and she's like one of the most confident people who like pumps up the insecure main characters and that kind of stuff and and so two different kind of portrayals of not saying it like it felt like in the 80s, they were not saying it because they didn't want people to like not watch the movie. They didn't want people to like be offended or upset or whatever. And then in this most recent one, they were not saying it because it didn't matter. It doesn't matter that she's in a wheelchair. She's awesome, you know? And so um, kind of thinking about those two different things that have happened. Yeah. I, I want to say that I do like that there are some TV shows where there's a person with a disability, but that's not really the main aspect. Um, I don't know if you guys ever know the show The Middle, mm -hmm. but the character Brick, he has his tics, and, um, but that's not really like the, the point of the show. It just kind of adds to his character. And of course, it's kind of a comedy. So there are kind of com comedic moments about that. Um, and like, for instance, Breaking Bad, Walt's son has, has muscular dystrophy. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's another really good example. But I think it's also important to have shows like for instance, Atypical on Netflix that focused um, where the main character was a kid in high school dealing with a disability and it focused on kind of the challenges that he faced. So I think it's important to have different kinds of media portraying it in different ways because it's because you also want people to know how someone with a disability is affected by everyday things, but you also want to not portray someone as strictly being their disability. Yeah, you want to see him as a whole person. And atypical was neat too, because it did focus on him, but it actually focused on his family members too, and how they did have other things going on in their lives, but also how his disability as the forefront of their family kind of impacted them and their relationships with him and their relationships with each other. So, you know, I, I thought that was one of the, the better portrayals, although the main character does not have autism. Uh, the actor does not have autism. And so that's another area of, you know, should disabled people play disabled characters, complicated. Yeah, Aaron, did you wanna share something? No, not necessarily. 
Well, I think that you brought up a really interesting point about who should be playing these characters, because I think, um, you know, if you're looking at like industry and like, like Hollywood and like show business, where there are such limited roles for folks based sometimes based on who they are or if they have a disability, and then for roles where it's portraying folks with a disability to then not get those roles, um, you know, I think it's really limiting. And I think, like, if you want to authentically, like, include folks, um, you know, why would you not include that in casting? Um, but I think the overall representation that you were talking about, because I, I agree with you about the sex lives of college girls and the way, like, that character is just, like, ingrained in the show, um, just as, like, who they are. Um, I think that actually going back to our conversation about stigma is important because I think when there's authentic and real representation, um, I think then it kind of becomes part of like this wider cultural mindset where if you are continually seeing and kind of taking in that representation, like I think it starts changing the way you folks think about it. Mm -hmm. I would add to that, this is a brief speak in regards to actors and actresses who fall into the um, deaf culture or hard of hearing culture and, and being the characters on the show that are deaf and hard of hearing. I would say not that is very much, in my opinion, should be how it is uh, because it's also an established culture as well. Um, but I think another layer to that is when they have a director who is also a member of that community, you can see it. And so again, my eyes are kind of, I'm looking for this now all the time, but you can tell when the camera angles are, are shot by someone who is deaf or hard of hearing because they know kind of the frame the body needs to be in for better communication, the way the body is turned for better communication with ASL. Um, so not even just the characters on the show and the, the actors who are portraying those characters, but the behind the scenes crew, because then it's, there's a commonality, there's a unity that shines through everything else that's taking place. Um, that's, that's such an interesting point too. And you, yeah, it's like when you buy a new car, you see that whatever that psychological phenomenon is, when you buy a new car and you start seeing that car everywhere on the road, um, you know, um, somebody tell me what that was called, I can't remember, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's uh, it's that's really interesting because you know I do think showing deaf culture on TV or movies or whatever has has come a long way and is pretty accurately portrayed and they usually have deaf people uh, in those roles. But I hadn't thought about sort of it also being on the backside um, within the culture. I and mean, people will often like say they hired a, an expert in the whatever field, but the the actual people attending to to, to it. Um, we had an interesting article in our newspaper and in the newsletter that our team chatted about a little bit that uh, in thinking about intersectional identities, there was um, the American Sign Language interpreters for the Lion King, the musical on Broadway, they were white and they were let go recently because they felt like because all of the actors in the Lion King on Broadway are people of color, uh, that the sign language interpreter should be of color too. And we in our office kind of talked about like, if I put this in the newsletter, is this going to be controversial? And we then we looked it up a little bit and we looked at how the deaf community felt about it and it is controversial. Um, and the jury's still out on sort of, was that a good decision or, or not? And different, you know, different identities felt different ways about it. And so, you know, 
Um, I, I don't know if I have a question around it, but that was that was a tough one for me to figure out how I felt about it. Um, I don't really know how I feel about it. Well, and I think too, to the point about behind the scenes, like, and I know this has come up somewhat over the last few years about even the writing of these uh, writing books or, you know, TV shows, movies, our writers rooms, including the people that are actually being shown on the screen. You know, if you're going to have a TV show that's going to have the topic of race, do you have people in, of color in the writer's room? Because how else are you going to have that perspective, right? Um, and so, you know, kind of both to Aaron and Marshall's points about like, you know, people being able to be behind the scenes working on those things so that it is an accurate portrayal. Because I think when we get into stereotypes or, you know, having portrayals that are just based off of what we think someone's perspective is, it's because you're, you know, that information is coming from someone who doesn't have that lived perspective. It doesn't mean that they can't contribute to a writer's room, but I think not including people in those, they're in those communities, you're not going to get as rich of a story that people are going to understand. I think it is really important to include people who are who are affected by disability in like the process of making some sort of media that represents that. Um, for instance, a couple of years ago, I don't know if you guys know the singer Sia, but she had a, uh, she, I think she directed a movie um, about a person with autism and the person she chose to play that character did not have autism. It was, um, she was someone who was neurotypical. And I remember when the trailer for that movie uh, came out, a lot of people online were, you know, really upset and frustrated by that because they were like, you know, Sia, you're trying, you said you're doing this to spread awareness about, you know, people with disabilities, but yet you're not featuring somebody who actually has that disability. So not only is that, you know, I don't have autism, but I know a lot of the uh, people who do have autism were really frustrated with that and really kind of offended because, you know, the trailer was just very hard to watch because you just see her, because just knowing that she's neurotypical and she's imitating basically somebody who is neurodivergent. And I remember Sia said, you know, after the backlash, oh, well, we tried to get, you know, someone who was autistic to play this role, but, you know, the filming and all the acting and it was, it was too demanding for them. And I think that's just makes it all very worse because you're just basically saying that people who have autism aren't able to be in movies. And it also kind of goes to show that you weren't doing enough to accommodate that person. And, you know, you're the mission that you say that you stand for isn't really aligning with your actions. Um, so there's that. On, the, on that vein, it's really interesting. Um, producer, writer, Jason Kadams, who did the Parenthood TV show, hit the son on the show had autism and the actor did not have autism. Jason Kadams' son has autism. Um, and he chose an actor who didn't initially. Um, and they, that was one of those instances where they said they brought in all these teams of, you know, experts to like help the character be realistic and go through the real things and that kind of stuff. But there was some backlash about that. So Jason Kadam's most recent show, um, which is a lovely show as we see it, I think it's called, um, which is four main characters who live in an apartment together who have autism and the actors have autism. So he's sort of trying to reconcile that um, and it's a scripted show. And so he's, you know, kind of themed through through that. I mean, he's done a million shows like Friday Night Lights and, uh, and stuff like that, but it was really interesting. Like 
a man whose son has autism wanted to portray autism, but didn't use an actor with autism in the first place, you know, um, and thinking about that um, and thinking about, you're right, Ainsley, like they could probably make an accommodated filming environment to some capacity for somebody to, you know, participate in. Um, I think it's, the, I think we haven't gotten there yet with the invisible disabilities, with the psychological disabilities. I think they're, they're, they're still kind of harder to portray in media. A bit invisible is hard, you know. Um, I think they're still often kind of more a bad guy or considered somebody who's a weak character or something like that. And I'm actually having a hard time thinking of even examples, but to I'm really- so, I was just thinking of like some of the trend recently of like uh, TV shows that revolve around like one woman who has depression. Right, so, um, so the Fleischman's show, what's that yeah, show? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're just, it, and those things are fine. And, but I think too, it's, it, it kind of, it portrays sometimes people with an indiv invisible disability as this all encompassing thing, because we, I don't think we know enough about how to make something invisible, visible to everybody else. I think it, it, it ends being, ends up being amplified so much that it looks like it takes over every aspect of a person's life where they cannot get out of bed or function. Um, and, and there are certainly times where that might be the case for someone on a certain day. Um, but yeah, it, we work with so many students who have invisible disabilities that we know are getting up and doing the work and, and participating in society. Um, and so, I, yeah, I, I don't know that there's a good enough job yeah. done there. Yeah. Not the weak character, not the comic relief, not the, you know, the, that kind of stuff. I think we're, we're, we're still struggling on that one mm -hmm. a little bit. I don't know if anyone, I'm, I'm struggling to think of sort of a healthy portrayal. I'm sure it's there, but I'm struggling to come up with an example of, yeah, Sarah? Um, in a very real world way, um, the department I work in is university relations and our job is portraying students to other students. And so I've, I've reached out to Jody because we, you know, we're starting a student advisory board so that we're including people in our marketing, including students, when we market to students. Um, but again, I don't have anything to offer them uh, as far as money or whatever. So it's, you know, people who are very busy explaining themselves. I'm asking them to come explain themselves um, and help us market um, inclusively and, um, you know, with a sense of belonging. And how do we portray invisible identity in our marketing materials? To say that this is a good place to come. Right. Um, so it, it's we are struggling. We we want to include as many um, personalities, identities as we can in a student advisory group, but we also have nothing to offer right. them. And it's their volunteer and their time. And students are busy. Mm -hmm. So it's it's tough. Like I think people have good intentions, and then they just do the best with what they can get. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Always. Right, and you're public facing too, and you have to balance a political thing around, you know, in a brochure, is a data point of having how many students are registered with the disabilities office a good thing, or is it not as good of a thing? I, you know, I would I would vote good thing, but I don't know if everybody externally would vote that's a good thing. I don't know, um, you know, that's a, that's a hard one, um, you know, to, to know how to balance that piece too. Um, so yeah, and then we have, 
you know, we were, we were redoing some of our marketing and we have these stock photos and it's the same girl with a service dog, or, you know, um, and over and over and over again in the same picture. And, you know, we need to, you know, kind of work through that a little bit too. And how we portray who our students are. We're like, we just want two people sitting at a table together. That's who our students are, two people, um, you know, but that doesn't necessarily say disability services, that kind of thing. So it's, um, yeah, I don't know. Final thoughts as we wrap up. Okay, yeah, go ahead. I just want to thank everybody for coming. Yeah, thank you, thank you so much. Okay, we have a final question that we always ask all of our guests. In that final question is, after this conversation, what's a takeaway for you? And you don't have to answer, but you can think about to yourself too. What's a takeaway from today's conversation and anything changed about how you feel as a person with a disability or just disability stigma in general? I think for me, I was thinking back to what you said about the HR paperwork. I, I never check off hard of hearing, mm-hmm. never. And it's not because I don't accept that. Uh, it's more because with my journey, there's also the cultural component of death with a capital D is very different than what's going on with the audiology within your ears. So while I know, while this is part of my identity and how I have to navigate through the world, I am not privy to that cultural identity because this is a late in life. It is not, you know, ASL is not my primary mode of communication while we do use it quite a bit in our house. And so I think it's, that's why I, yeah, I just, when you said that, I was like, oh, wow, yeah, I've never checked that off ever. And that's just the cultural side, not the physical ears side. Mm-hmm. I think I, I want to continue, one, continue learning and also like deep dive into the media um, question, um, because I feel like for me, like, I don't know enough about portrayals and representation. And so, um, seeking out some different resources and like examples of that. Um, I really thought about what you said about how it can be hard to like balance different kinds of disabilities. Like if you have someone with a service dog and then you have someone who's allergic to dogs. And I think it's, you know, as we're trying to be more inclusive and educate ourselves, it's okay to recognize that it can be difficult to deal with, you know, and it can be hard and it's hard to you know, always think about how something might affect somebody with a disability because there's so many kinds of disabilities. And it, it really can be hard to be always be so inclusive and to be um, and to make certain things accessible for everyone. So I think I think for me a takeaway is something you mentioned earlier, Marshall, about like uh, sometimes taking that feedback and being able to do something actionable with it. Because like you were just saying, Ainsley, like it is hard, we're always trying to do our best. And I think sometimes when we do something, we don't always do it right. Like, you know, we we're constantly changing the website and is the bane of my existence. Like we think we have it down, it's amazing. And then somebody gives a feedback and I'm like, are we really gonna edit this thing again? Like what's going on? Like, I just wanna leave it alone for like a couple months or whatever. Uh, and I think sometimes, you know, 
because it's just hard you feel because I'm a, a definitely somebody who likes to check things off the list and like now it's done and I feel good about that and it's hard when we're constantly evolving those things but I think trying to take that and say you know what Jody was talking about earlier like okay that's feedback that we received like let's do something with that and and trying to take away the piece of feeling like I worked so hard on that and it still wasn't good enough well then that's just about me right and like who cares at the end of the day I'm not going to my grave with like Lauren wrote this on this website and it was <laughs> you know like get over it right and so so yeah I think that those those tips were were helpful of like taking that with grace and saying okay like what can I do differently instead of just taking it as like I did something wrong and I need to fix it and I guess I think you know I I still can't consider myself a disability expert but I certainly am not like a other cultures expert and so like just to continue to make sure I'm I'm understanding sort of the multi layers of sort of what others are bringing from their their own stuff uh, that contributes to disability and how that plays out so for me I think that's what I'm going to mull over between now and the next podcast so stay tuned thank you so much everybody thank you